Welcome to CMO Confidential, the podcast that takes you inside the drama, decisions, and choices that go with being the head of marketing. Hosted by five-time CMO, Mike Linton. Welcome marketers, advertisers, and those who love them to Chief Marketing Officer Confidential. CMO Confidential is a program that takes you inside the drama, the decisions, and the politics that go with being the head of marketing at any company in what is one of the most scrutinized jobs in the executive suite. I'm Mike Linton, the former CMO of Best Buy, eBay, Farmers Insurance, and Ancestry.com, here today with my guest, Gary Steibel of New England Consulting Group. Welcome, Gary. Uh, welcome, and thank you uh, to, for inviting me, Mike. Of course. Gary started his career at Penn working on the Wharton Economic Econ what the economic model. I'm just going to say that because econometric is too hard for me to say. And then he went to PG and brand management on Pringles, a very natural career move. From there, he moved into consulting, first on Glenn Denning, and then as the founder of the New England Consulting Group, where he has been for quite a few years. His <laughs> clients include Nestle, Charles Schwab, McDonald's, Four Seasons, and Pfizer. Today's topic. A consumer products consultant talks about marketing, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We are going to tap into Gary's experience consulting with all of these companies and run across the marketing landscape in whatever way the conversation takes us. So Gary, first question, you've been watching marketing for an awful long time. Give us an overview of the forces shaping marketing now and what has been the major shift over the last five to 10 years that you've seen? Well, going back to shortly after the Earth's crust cool, there have yeah, been right a, after the Pleistocene era. Yeah. been a few changes. Uh, when you think about it, from largely domestic or national marketing to a global marketing uh, scope, uh, when you think about traditional media going to digital media and other forms of media, when you think about uh, bricks and mortar to e-commerce and DTC, I mean a huge number of changes. But the one most important change across all categories in which we work, whether it's healthcare, financial services, PG, the loss of the big idea. Where is the big idea? Uh, a small insurance company, once upon a time, stayed relevant by saying, we, we know a few things because we've seen a few things. And they competed effectively with right. State Farm, with all state, with most of the states, uh, because th there was a big idea. We know something the others may not know because the, um, and I'm talking about farmers. You're I sure. know. Look, I love having you on the show and I surely appreciate the call. out. <laughs> I do want to say, make sure you are facing directly in because this, this sound is, is uh, ebbing a little bit when you turn to the right or left. Got it. And so this big idea thing, you think, so beneath that, I'm guessing what you're saying is, Given all the the ways marketing has developed, including the now you can put analytics on so many more things than you could, uh, that what is happening now is some of the innovation and the big idea is being taken off the table in the interest of efficiency. Is that a fair way to put this? Well, efficiency is part of it, but it's short-term thinking, whether it's short-term thinking about delivering a profit number, whether it's a digital message where you don't have a chance to create a big idea uh, like just do it. Those words mean nothing without the context. A big idea like uh, because you're worth it. 
wow, because I'm worth it, maybe I'll pay a little more for that. A big idea that lasts for more than a few minutes or a few hours, but for a few decades. Uh, live better, save money. Wow, that's buy low, sell high. That's a pretty big idea. So, uh, so beneath this, I would say, I, and I believe this, so many, many folks are saying that we've had this era of free money where uh, companies were paid just for generating sales and it didn't matter if those sales were profitable. And um, and now that's all changed um, or is in the process of changing with uh, inflation and, and all the other things going on. And But many companies have really stepped away from, I think what you're saying on the big idea front is, is really the building the brands in the interest of driving just short-term sales. And I'm guessing you agree with that, given your early statement. What's going to happen to these companies and how will you be able to see it as a as a consultant or a watcher of the marketplace um, where, where you see companies that have shorted the long-term investment in the brand, basically? What's going to happen and and where will you where will you where will it come play? In the stock price and sales, where? Give us some give us some thoughts. All of the above. In the stock price, particularly in sales profits. But market share, what happened to the focus on market share? Inflation can be a bad thing, and I feel badly for people who are suffering because of inflation, can't pay their mortgage, can't put enough food on the table. But for most corporations, inflation's a pretty good thing because it allows you to take pricing, and they have taken pricing. Well, we did see, we did see Procter take have massive earnings increases because they took pricing and they kept share. Um, and we're seeing that in some companies, but we're not seeing it at all. We, we watched a lot of the, um, you know, subscription companies, you know, Netflix and, and Disney and other folks report uh, suddenly, oh my gosh, you know, subscriptions are are falling. And so tell, tell me, tell me like, so inflation is a good thing for some people, but not all. Tell me, keep going on this on this line and tell me more of what you're thinking. Yeah, inflation hasn't hurt the subscription services. Competition has. Once upon a time, there were three and a half networks. All of a sudden, there was a subscription service. There was pay with HBO. But there's overcompetition. Category is growing, but competition has forced them to be a little more price competitive. And they're paying through the nose for content. But if you move away from that business to most businesses, the biggest problem they've got is volume declines, because as a scientist by by education, bodies in motion tend to remain in motion, and bodies yeah. tend to remain in front. And what's happening to the Proctors and the Nestle's and most companies is their sales are up because they're taking pricing. Their profits are up because they're taking more pricing than their costs would justify. Yeah. Their volumes are declining, and that's scary. You and I, Mike, have seen this picture before. A lot of the people who are watching haven't because they're younger. But in the 70s and 80s, when we saw volume start to erode, that's a very bad thing for all category and all of the competitors. Gary, I really liked all the nice things you said about my time at Farmers. And now that you've mentioned how old I am, it's really <laughs> helpful. Um, I, 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 I want to talk about private label and marketing budgets and what's going on there because we've seen a huge amount of folks get you know do layoffs we've seen a lot of people cut uh, particular brand spending um we're also watching private label close the gap on a lot of businesses 
Tell me what you're seeing there, because you you consult with a lot of companies that have private label threats to them. Give us give us a take on what's going on there. Well, we we work on the dark side as well as the bright side. So yes, we are engaged with global companies on how to control and uh, keep private label down. We also work for a lot of private label companies, and not a one of our private label clients has had a layoff in recent, in recent wait, months. Wait, 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 is this right? So that's they're, that's they're going crazy, Mike. They're they they're they're looking for additional capacity. So, so private label. Yeah. Oh, keep going. Go ahead. Private label, both here in the U.S. out out O.U.S. is growing, and it they're able to take pricing. And the reason they're doing that is they're innovating. Some of the private label products have brand names on them that look like they're legitimate brands because they are legitimate. Well, they are legitimate. I mean, you could see Safeway or you know all the Costco brands. Absolutely, they've come into their own. And the Private Label Manufacturers Association had record attendance at its show back in November. These companies are doing well. Uh, Many of them cannot supply demand; they're out of capacity. That's interesting. And my invitation to that uh, show must have got lost in the mail um, because I would have loved to go to that. So so wait, I want to I want to flip over to the uh, other side of this, the branding side. We're watching a lot of companies like GE and Kellogg breaking up and creating new brand names. What's going on there? I mean, in the face, on one hand, we've just discussed the power of scale and the power of scale for both private label and big, big brands or big companies like Procter. Uh, on the other hand, we're watching GE and Kellogg breaking into pieces, like you know, Kraft broken into pieces. What's going on there? And and give us some good examples of people that have broken up companies the right way and the wrong way. Well, most of the ones that are breaking up have done it because of financial reengineering, and in most cases, it does create value. So that if you take a GE, which was not performing well before the breakup and put it into three pieces that can focus on those three pieces. You take a pharmaceutical company like GE, uh, like J&J. I, I, I like two-letter names. Yeah, I get it. Like, yeah. If you take uh, what's going on today at J&J, uh, they are breaking up. They're moving their consumer businesses away from their pharmaceutical and medical device businesses. In most cases, it does add real value. Where they get into trouble is when they don't focus on their core competencies. And in the case of GE, the GE name is, is it still has a lot of value. Does. A lot of people look up to the GE name. So GE Healthcare, wow, that's a, that's a pretty good name. Um, GE Aviation, what, that's a pretty good name. Why didn't they call it GE Energy? instead of a name that nobody will remember a year after they spend many millions of dollars on everything from business cards to... uh, What is the name? What did they call it? uh, Something Nova. Ah, okay. Probably Uh, not Bossa Nova. It's such a great brand name, I can't (laughs) even remember. Probably not Villanova or Bossa Nova. Um, But it's funny because Nova means... Don't go in Spanish. We learned that a few years ago. All right. <laughs> I'm going to leave the Nova jokes alone now, but I, I want to flip over to now the folks in the seat, you know, and a lot of our listeners are in, in surely in marketing or running marketing departments or, or supporting them as ad agencies. You know, in spite of the recent Spencer uh, study that says CMOs are are maybe not turning over as much as, as we thought, 
you know, which is a surprise study after 20 years of saying it's the fastest turning job. I think they still continue to turn over a lot and in a short period of time and have for the past 20 years. What's going on there? How come it hasn't gotten better? Is it getting better? And how does that chronic turnover of marketers and agencies help or hurt companies from your seat? Well, it helps us a lot because (laughs) there is no uh, historic wisdom, knowledge, insight of the DNA of the brands and the companies. The study you point out is probably accurate. I've seen it. But if somebody is going 120 miles an hour on a highway and slows down to 110, does that make that driver safer? I guess, but I I sure don't want to be near him or her driving at 110 miles an hour. So, okay, uh, maybe CMOs aren't turning over quite as often as we thought. It's still terribly high. Yeah. It's unlike finance. It's unlike a lot of other disciplines, R&D, where you can take your knowledge and you're actually more valuable when you move on. Uh, This is like HR, where the insight you gain about brands, consumers, customers, it's it's not that it's, it's of such great value. It's what distinguishes marketers from other professionals, their ability to put insight and knowledge of the entire ecosystem into growth and profitability. So it's not healthy for the companies, uh, and it, it's great for the consultants. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, we would love to see it go way down. And we would love to see companies look at T-Mobile. Their president, their CEO, is an ex-CMO of the yeah. company. Look at Chipotle. Their CEO, Brian Nickel, was a CMO before at Taco Bell, at Procter, wherever. But the point we're trying to make, or I would make, is that having greater depth of knowledge within that CMO position is absolutely critical at a point of time like this. Got it. Thank you very much. So um, since we're talking to a number of B-School professors, including Dave Riebstein from Wharton, um, I have to ask, since we're talking about CMOs and all this stuff, how did you decide to move from Wharton and economic modeling to P&G and potato chips on Pringles? Oh. What 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 made you make that jump? Because that's when when people hear chips, most of our younger users are going to think computer chips or digital chips or DRAM or RAM, but not not potato chips. Tell us what went through your head when you made that move. Well, first of all, it it was not my move. It was Proctor's move. I was a nerd before they created the term, Mike. I may still be. Yes. Well, we won't go there, Gary. (laughs) I consider myself a quant. But Proctor wanted some people uh, that weren't marketing majors, that weren't, uh, that were were more focused on analytics. Uh, And I got through school on math fellowships because I wasn't smart enough to be able to complete a sentence or a paragraph. So my English grades were terrible, but my math scores were 100. Because if you memorize every formula, you always get everything right. I went to Proctor on a sabbatical planning to come back to Penn. Uh, But I was in a meeting with Ed Arts, who passed away very recently. And he approved my budget and looked at me and said, what color is it going to be? And I said, I don't know. What model do we use to choose colors, Ed? And he said, <laughs> I think I'm going to use you. So I had to think. I never had to think. I, I, I always had the right number to the end number 
Um, never went back. It was the most exciting thing. So uh, launching Pringles, working on Jif, working on Duncan Hines. Uh, I, I loved those businesses. All right, you're making me hungry, Gary, by naming all these brands. And by the way, for our listeners, Ed Arts went on to run the company. Um, so tell us, like at CMOs today, we, we talked about all the pressures on them, all the changes. They also have these social political pressures on them to take a stand. What should they be focusing on today from your seat? Because you get to look around the world and see all these companies. Tell me what CMO should be thinking about now. Um, but but go ahead, just let it well, rip on your listeners. Yeah, they should they should focus on the job that their brand needs to do for its customers and its consumers. This goes back to my mathematical heritage. If you've got, this is pretty simple math. If you've got a fifty share of market. You should be very careful about what you do other than doing the job your customers will pay you to do. Now, let's say you've got a five share of market and the marketplace is split 50-50. You could lose two and a half share points by taking a political stand or a social stand or some kind of stand. But you might gain a chunk of the 50% of the market, 45%, that yeah. you don't own. Uh, so... Small brands should absolutely focus on doing things that have the potential to attract. Large brands ought to be very careful, and Bud Light learned that very recently. Yeah, they're now, learning a pretty big lesson. Here. Now, Bud Light did it wrong in, in both. They didn't understand their consumer base, and then they walked away from the position. They had. Nike took a very similar position with Colin Kaepernick not too long yeah. ago. Uh, but rather than walking away from that position, because they knew who they're ultimately athletes yeah. who are influencers. They stuck by him. Rather yeah, well, than you know, they, we, yeah. If they lose the athletes, they lose the brand. So um, I, I think that's interesting, but, well but I think what, what I hear you saying um, that is uh, probably key here is be very cautious. If you're talking about sociopolitical things, like very cautious and think it through. Think it through very deeply. We have we have a whole academic discussion on this as well as as one of our shows from academic research. Let's let's flip over to now. You, you talked about the big idea and innovation and how private label is actually doing more of it maybe than the big brands. Talk about disruption. Why is this not working so well for a lot of the companies out there? Because all the companies say they want innovation and disruption, and everyone's reading all the books. You know, disrupt yourself before others do. Blue ocean strategy, you know, and then they come in and they don't actually innovate. Why not? Stage gate. Tell me, tell me more. The world is living and the consulting industry has done this. And I'm ashamed to be part of it because we won't. Uh, these huge stage gate processes that take months and years that kill great eyes. Can you imagine Steve Jobs? working through a stage gate process. And who should describe stage gate? Because I'm sure not all of our users know it's, what stage it's gate a, means. It's a multi, it, it's sometimes nine, 12 month, 18 month, two year. It's a process in which you laboriously attack everything that could possibly be good about a product or a service until there are very few left. And you end up with something that is painting by the numbers. So it resembles something that you know, but it ain't artwork. Here's, here's, the, yeah. 
here's how I think of it for what it's worth. It's like a giant slalom course where you're skiing down and every gate, if you miss one gate, you're out of the race. And the innovative idea has to run all these gates through and make it down the hill and before it runs out of time. The number of ideas that miss a single gate or a single number are enormous. And the more gates, the more chance you have to miss. And and so that that's my view of stage gate. And I do think a lot of companies uh, probably are stage gating too many things. And also they are making up financial numbers for a truly innovative idea in, in the early gates where if the idea doesn't make the numbers, which are totally made up, the idea is killed. And and that is super dangerous. I've seen that in, in some of my companies. Hey, hey Gary, um, tell us, you know, since when about Proctor, does, does consumer goods training still matter? You consult with a lot of companies that aren't consumer packaged goods. Does consumer goods training still matter like it used to? And and should should some of our younger listeners be thinking of getting it if they want a career in marketing? Well, they should, but they shouldn't limit themselves, Mike, to consumer goods alone. There is great training available in food service marketing, restaurants. There is great training in financial services marketing. But marketing principles matter because Roberto Goizetta said it years ago. He was the CEO of Coke. He said, if we lose all of our factories, if all of our trucks are destroyed, we'll buy more trucks. We'll build more. If somebody takes the Coke name away, we close our doors. Yeah. So uh, the principles of marketing as demonstrated by the better CPGs, the better financial services companies, the better healthcare companies, and there are many. The problem we are having today is that so many people don't get the basic training, even at some of the better CPGs. Yeah. They don't get that kind of training that you got at P&G that so many others got at General Mills, at other great places, Unilever, Nestle. Yeah, sure. It's absent. Okay. Two, two last, two, uh, the last question with two parts. Uh, you can take either part. Uh, the funniest marketing consulting story you are able to share and or what practical advice you would give the marketers and agencies out there listening to this podcast that we haven't talked about yet. So have have at it your pick. Well, I'm going to do the second one first because it's a short answer and then I'll you'll give me time to think about what I can one? say. Right. What I can't. Uh, number one, replace the stage gate model with what we call perpetual prototyping. Constantly getting out there with half-baked ideas that over time become good ideas and with debate become great ideas. But less time, less funds spent against it, more involvement of customers and consumers. And, and the other piece to that, what would I say? Focus on the big idea. So and faster, faster, quicker test on big ideas and a lot more of them versus... Well, not necessarily a lot more of them. Okay. Get down to one and stick with it. Don't change it in, in an hour or two. Don't constantly. <laughs> so because most of these businesses, Mike, are execution driven businesses. I would always rather have an A plus execution of a B plus strategy 
than an A strategy that nobody knows how to execute. Yeah, that's a good point. The funniest, look, there there are lots of funny now we're going to We're flipping over the question, everybody. We're going to the funny part. Here we go. Let's see what I we can do. This is several of them I shouldn't sell without permission. The, uh, the one I will share with you, because I, it's been a few years. Uh, when we were given the Cheetos business by Frito-Lay, yeah. Below a hundred million dollars, and Frito has a hundred million dollar base for anything below that. They call an allied brand. And they wait, wait you, you just said Cheetos went below a hundred million in sales. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's a crisis. The category, no. the category, the category had flattened out. It's had major competition from planters, private label, and regional brands. Okay. Uh, and they they said, uh, "What would you guys give us a second opinion?" Uh, should we just let it make it an allied brand or should we try to reposition? Uh, so as part of our diligence, we said, how did it get to be a hundred million dollar brand to begin with? And it was during the days of, of easy rider, which some of your listeners may not. Sure. Cult movie. Uh, and they created cheesy rider and cheesy rider was a mouse. And think about it. Mice know their cheese, right? Uh so uh, that drove the business uh, up to over a hundred million. But it, it, God bless them. Uh, the, the Surgeon General of the United States said that uh, junk food is not good for you. Um, we walked out of meetings when people even used the term junk food. We refused to sit in the meeting. Yeah. Uh, the um, but so they changed it and they started refocusing Cheetos. The target audience was mom. They were telling her it had real cheese in Cheetos, as if anybody cared. Uh, the, <laughs> the, I could go on. But we went, we got with the agency and the, the team there, and we said, we want to go back to the what is in the basic DNA of this brand, what made this brand great to begin with. We want to go back um, to the future. And we created this, we created this character called Cheesy the Mouse. Because mice have credentials and we're selling cheese. We're not selling junk. Uh, the day before the presentation, the week before the presentation, the agency balked because they knew the CEO had taken Cheesy Rider off the air. And they were scared to come back to him with another, with a mouse named uh, So they called him Chester the Cheetah. <laughs> and the rest, the rest was history. The rest worked. Okay. So, you know, I, I, if I could, I'd have... Uh, a billion, it's well over a billion dollar brand today. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I think that is an awesome story. And also, if I could have out music, it would be, we would we would have the Easy Rider song, but we change it to CC Rider. So we're at the end of our show. Thank you, Gary. We'll probably have you back in, in six months or so. And thanks to everyone for listening to CMO Confidential. Look for more of our shows on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, and YouTube, which include an executive search perspective on marketing and CMOs. Is the CMO position headed for extinction? Why is marketing innovation so freaking hard? What your agency really wants to tell you but won't, parts one and two. And why the short shelf life of CMOs, parts one and two. Hey, all you marketers, be safe out there. This is Mike Linton signing off for CMO Confidential. Today's episode of CMO Confidential is brought to you by CMOcoaches.com. 
Are you a current or aspiring chief marketing officer looking to take your career to the next level? You should work with a CMO coach. CMO coaches are former CMOs who are nationally certified coaches. So whether you want to improve your leadership skills, develop your team, or drive better business results, we have the experience and expertise to help you succeed. To learn more, visit us at cmocoaches.com. Great careers are forged out of great relationships. Your success, whatever your field, relies and thrives on the support and insights of others. I'm Andy Lapata, an author and speaker on the power of professional relationships. In the Connected Leadership podcast, I have the privilege of interviewing people from around the world to understand the relationships that have made a difference on their journey and how their insights can help you. From Nobel Prize winners to Olympians, from NASA astronauts to peace campaigners, my guests have shared some captivating moments from their lives and careers. Combined with experts from leading universities, cutting-edge authors and giants of business, the Connected Leadership Podcast aims to inspire, educate and entertain. Hi, my name is Sara, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.